Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Real quickly, let me just remind you about Table Talk this coming week, September the 13th on Wednesday, 6 o'clock here at North Main Street Church of God. We will be gathering together for first off a meal, and uh, it is by donation only, uh, but uh, we, we wanted to pull all the strings and all the different hindrances out of the way to have you come and be a part of our Wednesday night Table Talk discussion. Um, so 6 o'clock to 6.30, we'll be providing a, a small meal, nothing like you would get on a Sunday luncheon like you're going to have today, but it will be substantive enough to give you a meal for yourself and your family uh, so that you don't have to worry about making dinner on those nights. We are going to be, dis- amen, we are going to be discussing hot topics, difficult topics, or difficult questions. The first question we're going to uh, talk about this next Wednesday is, what is truth? And uh, <laughs> that, that seems difficult just to answer in and of itself. We're going to talk about subjective truth and objective truth. Is, is it your truth and my truth, or is it the truth? Uh, and we're going to start unpacking that. It is a multi-generational opportunity for you, your family, uh, whoever would like to come out. There will be child care for children under the, from five and younger, but we want to encourage families to bring their elementary age and teenage kids as well, because these are conversations you should be having at home with your kids. Because guess what? If you aren't having these conversations at home, somebody else is having them outside of the home that is not you. And they are defining for your children and for those in your home what truth is, what gender is, what marriage is. And as a church, we need to be on the front lines of this. We're going to be hitting some very difficult topics. We are not going into them hate-filled. We're going into them, as all believers in Christ should, with a sense of love and compassion for those that struggle with difficult circumstances and lifestyles, but we are going to look at these topics from a biblical perspective, okay? So that will be on Wednesday nights, starting next Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, 6 o'clock. Discussion will start at 6.30, uh, and then we'll close out promptly no later than 8 o'clock, because we want to be able to let you get home and do your nighttime routines, okay? All right, all hearts clear? All right, good. We started a series last week, and I was sicker than a dog. Supposed to be preaching at Emlinton at Whitehall Camp and Conference Center while Matt was preaching here, and I know sickness swept across the church. So I heard, uh, and I don't think I was the breakout monkey for that. I hope I wasn't the breakout monkey for that, uh, but I know a lot of us got sick and we're just really under the weather. I am still not back to 100%, but I'm working on it, all right? I, let's be honest. I don't know that I was ever 100%. So... Uh, <laughs> If you say you are, kudos to you. You've got something figured out that I don't. So, But we started a series last week called Kindness 24-7. And many of you took the challenge seriously that Matt brought before us. And that is to do acts of kindness on a regular basis. We decided instead of... You know, we, we were, again, pulling out all the stops. We wanted to provide you with suggestions on what to do. And there are three kindness boards with kindness kindness suggestions throughout the facility. There's one across from the coffee shop. There's a couple out in the front entryway there. And there are suggestions for kindness. And we asked you to take one of those and do it within the seven days of the week leading into this Sunday. How many of you had a chance to do that? All right, those of you at home, um, you, you uh, could, could get those kindnesses as well. Just check with the front office and we will shoot some your way. Uh, there are some mystery kindnesses too. Did you notice some envelopes on those boards? You're not supposed to pull it off, look at it, and put it back. If you take it, it's yours. Those mystery kindnesses are a little bit more involved than the ones that are just opened up for everyone to see. But when you take it, you're committing to doing it. 
We have a QR code for you to uh, give us a video testimonial that you can upload on our website. We would love to hear your story and to be able to show your story if you would allow us to with the congregation, or you could write us or text us, let us know how your kindness went, okay? All right, having said all of that, let's get into the message for today. We're looking at Jesus' first miracle. Does anybody know what that one was? No, it was grape juice. Actually, <laughs> Jesus literally did turn water into wine. No matter how much you want to debate it and get really blue in the face and say he didn't do alcohol, there's some telltale signs that it was actually alcohol in the passage, which I'll talk about. But today isn't about alcohol. All right? It's not about the wine. It's about the miracle that Jesus did. And it wasn't just any kind of miracle. When Jesus did miracles, he did them extraordinarily. He didn't just do one-offs here and there. He didn't just like, eh, all right, and do a miracle. Do you know what I'm saying? When Jesus did miracles, he did them not only with the authority of all heaven and the Father in heaven, but he did them in a way to blow the minds of those who saw and experienced it. And so as we look at the water into wine miracle, the very first recorded miracle of Jesus in John chapter 2 today, um, we're going to really look at how extraordinary that miracle was. But I want to ask you about the contrary or the opposite of excellent or extraordinary. It's called mediocrity. How many of you have so gotten used to living life in a mediocre way? So what is mediocre? Uh, I didn't have this in my notes, but uh, the dictionary tells us it means it's of ordinary or moderate quality. How many of you look for mediocre doctors <laughs> to do your medical stuff? Somebody, it's just, yeah, so-so. I'll take a so-so doctor. I don't, want to, I don't care if they're top of their field. Just give me somebody, you know? They're neither good nor bad, barely adequate. That's what mediocre means. How many, did I just shine a light? What's that? There it is. Oh, gotcha. Sorry. Um, mediocre. How many of you, if you're being honest, would say that there have been times in your life where your life has just been mediocre? Maybe it's now. Maybe it's just so-so. It's neither good nor bad. You're just kind of sailing adrift on a sea that has no wind on it, and you're just kind of, eh, whatever. Okay? Mediocre. According to Rabbi Mordecai Torchner, Vincent Van Gogh, no, Vincent Van Gogh the famous artist, noted that a life geared toward avoiding mistakes will be mediocre. Let me say that again. Vincent Van Gogh said, a life geared toward avoiding mistakes will ultimately end up being mediocre. Those who would achieve greatness, he says, must be prepared to fail. How many of you are afraid to fail? So how many of you who are afraid to fail have allowed yourselves to stay in the fear of failure and not move beyond that because you're afraid of failing? a tough one. He goes on to write, if we would warn our children away from investing in doomed efforts, we would simultaneously warn them away from investing in their own development and partial achievements. Parents, same can be said when you do everything for your children. If your children, uh, there are times when we step in and we help our children out, but there are other times when you step in when you shouldn't, when your child should be doing something, knowing that they're going to fail because they'll learn to grow stronger and how to do something differently. If you're always stepping in, this, and this is why, can I, a side note here from mediocrity and all of this, what would happen if God stepped in every single time to stop everything from happening? Think about that as a parent yourself. If you stepped in every time to intervene in your child's life, would they ever grow stronger? Would they ever learn? Would they stay stagnant? And would they stay infantile? What we know 
is that every time we intervene and do for our children what they should be doing themselves, we are enabling them in a pattern of behavior that ends up being very detrimental to their growth, correct? Okay, am I, are you guys, is this thing on? Are you here with me? Okay, how many of you have seen spoiled, rotten kids that are teenagers or young adults because they've had everything given to them and they've never been disciplined, they've never been allowed to fail, and then they get out into the real world and they're there getting pulled over by a cop? What happens? I didn't do anything wrong. Back off. You've seen these things on TV. The worst case scenarios are oftentimes shown on TV as if they're the norm. And I sadly believe they are becoming all the more the norm. So what would happen then if God intervened in every circumstance and situation to stop everything from happening? Would any of us grow or would we in this fallen world, be stagnant, continually broken, and miserable. Why does it, because one of the questions I get as a pastor all the time, why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't God stop X, Y, or Z from happening? And I wish I could tell you theologically and otherwise exact answers that would make you feel better, but I don't have all the answers to make you feel better. But what I do know is that God is good, he is loving, he is altogether compassionate, and sometimes his compassion has him refrain from intervening because he wants us to go through that deep, dark valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil because he wants to remind us that he is with us through it rather than getting us escaped from it. Okay? All of that said, when you see miracles that we're going to be exploring over the next two months, these are God's intervention in extraordinary ways into the ordinary mediocre way, days of life and, and stages of life. And so we're going to look at the water into wine. Let me, let me read to you what I wrote here. Mediocracy, mediocrity is a beast that most of us fight through throughout the course of our lives. Maybe it's because we lose steam as we grow older. We've seen every battle or most of them and we get jaded by the difficulties of life so much so that we become hardened and cynical. Can you say as you've grown older, you've become hardened and cynical? I know that at age 47, I'm not the same as I was at age 20 or even 15. The sky was the limit. There was nothing, there was no hill I couldn't climb. There was nothing I couldn't do. Yeah, I had insecurities as a kid and as a young adult, but there was still this optimism that was there. But we get jaded with time when we see enough or experience enough failure or hardships, so much so that we, we, we believe the lie of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, whose name is Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, Lucifer, whatever label you want to put on that punk, he is the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He is a real enemy, and it's not the person you're sitting next to. It's not the one who sits in the Oval Office. It's not the one that's on the, over the empires of Russia or China. There is an enemy, and he is the one we're fighting. And sometimes that enemy doesn't use these hellfire and brimstone tactics. Sometimes it's subtle. I just sprayed you with spit. Sometimes it's very subtle. Sometimes the enemy will come in like a lion seeking whom he may devour, and sometimes he slithers in like a serpent biting at your heels. A snake in the grass, so to speak. Maybe it's because we believe the disparaging things that people have said about us, about ourselves. Maybe it's because of the nagging insecurities that we've allowed to hold us back from doing what seems impossible that we've become, we've come to live a life of mediocrity. Or maybe it's, maybe just it's because we've grown all too accustomed to merely going through the motions and routines of everyday life that we don't believe there's any more to life than this. Can you attest to that? Is that something that, that, that kind of resonates with you? 
Can there be anything more than this? Is it, oh, dear, that must be a sign. No, just kidding. Is there anything more? Do you ever ask that? Is there anything more to life than this? Is this all there is? I mean, surely there's more. Maybe I'm the only one. But we don't start life this way. From birth, throughout our preteen years, life is anything but mediocre. Life is exciting, full of anticipation. Every day is a learning experience, full of possibilities and adventures. The sky's the limit. Things like clouds in the sky become objects of wonder, and we start to look for images like a Rorschach test. Look at that lion. Look at that elephant. And as we grow older, instead of keeping our heads lifted up, they go level. And then as life wears on, we lower our heads in discouragement. The colors of the rainbows, the birds, the trees, autumn sights, they're sights to behold, not merely distractions to pass by for a child. See, when Jesus tells his disciples and those that would keep children at bay, do you know what he's telling them? Or do you know what he tells them? Let the little children come to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And even in another passage says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Heaven. You cannot enter heaven unless you become like one of these little ones. What's he saying? You should be childish, wearing diapers, being burped all the time? No. That is childish, not childlike. There's a difference between childish behavior and childlike behavior. Do you agree? Okay, so childlike behavior is a sense of innocence and wonder, a sense of amazement and awe. Do you know how kids can be so awestruck by the ordinary? And the reason I think we, are, we lack an awestruckness, if I can say that as a word, is because as we grow older, the light dims in our eyes because we become jaded again by the difficulties of life. Instead of seeing the wonder and the miracle of the world around us that God has created, we just see it as something to overcome or to conquer or to be conquered by. And thus we're driven into a course of mediocrity and we find no joy in anything we're doing. And we come home miserable at the end of the day, whether it's from school or work And we carry that baggage of cynicism and anger into the home, all because we've lost a sense of what it truly means to be a child of God. And to know that we worship a God who is above and beyond all this world has to offer, and it's to him we owe allegiance because we weren't created for this world and so God, through Jesus, comes onto the scene as a baby in a manger through the miraculous birth of a virgin, from a virgin in Bethlehem by the name of Mary. And from day one, the odds were stacked against him. The king that ruled that area wanted to have him killed. And as a matter of fact, he had all children under the age of two in Bethlehem and the regions around it slaughtered because he was trying to kill this supposed newborn king that these wise men from the east had come to visit. And so before they succumbed to the slaughter, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus head off to Egypt warned by an angel to flee. And out of Egypt, later on, more than likely as a preschooler, Mary and Joseph would travel back to the region of Galilee and settle in Nazareth where Jesus would grow up. His dad would be a carpenter and work as a laborer. But Jesus' life was anything but ordinary. It was anything but mediocre. For he had been called to something so much more. That mediocre, what we would consider a mediocre existence growing up in a carpenter's home was anything but. 
He learned humility there, even though he was humble from the start. As he watched his earthly stepfather, Joseph, labor and work to provide for his family, to love his wife, to love his children. Yes, Jesus learned from the heavenly father who was his father, but he also learned from his earthly father how to respect, how to love, and how to treat people. You see, Jesus, when he took the reins of his ministry and headed into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted and tested, to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, was offered everything the world had to offer, but nothing the kingdom of heaven had to offer. And as tempting as it was to have everything the world could offer through the hands of the enemy, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And he surrenders, not just again, but a reaffirmation to the Father in heaven to do his will and his bidding. And so he comes out of the wilderness. He's baptized by John, the baptizer, his cousin, And his ministry starts. He chooses disciples for the region of Galilee. The first ones he chooses are fishermen around the Sea of Galilee. Peter, Andrew, James, John. And then we pick up the story in John chapter 2. After about the first four disciples he chooses. Read with me. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Doesn't say the 12 because he hadn't gathered all of them up to this point. We know by this point in time there were at least four. <clears throat> the wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. <laughs> and and I love what happens next. It's not a rude statement, even though it's oftentimes taken as rude. Dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. We're going to get back to that in just a moment, because I want you to understand, Jesus wasn't being disrespectful to his mama. Okay? But his mother told the servants, so all right, I, I'm picturing, because I visualize everything. She comes to Jesus. Jesus, they've run out of wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. And she's looking at him. We don't know what she does, but she turns to the servants and says, hey, do whatever he tells you to do. She's not going to take no for an answer. Do you catch that? Mamas, have you ever taken no for an answer from one of your kids? All right. Standing nearby were six stone water jars. That is an important statement. Stone water jars. We'll talk about that in a moment. Six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Not potable water. <laughs> okay? It's the one you take, a, you do ceremonial cleansing of washing your hands and all that. Okay? There's significance there. Jesus told the servants... Uh, each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. How many are there? Six, and there's 20 to 30 gallons per jar. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been feel, filled, he said, now dip out some and take it to the master of ceremonies. The one who set up the celebration and is in charge of the wedding celebration. Take care of it. Take some of the water out to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions, and when the master of ceremonies tasted the water, that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, what is, okay? Whenever they have had a lot to drink, he then brings out the less expensive wine. Do you know what he's saying? 
the best wine is brought out so everybody can say, woo, this is really good stuff. And then they get snookered enough to be able to bring out the poor wine because nobody cares by that point. I know that is a taboo subject, but the reality is that's what was going on. You say, well, Jesus likes to get people drunk? No, that is not the point of the message, nor is it a point of the miracle, which we will see. A host always serves the best wine first, he said, and then when everyone's had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best till now. This miraculous sign in Cana and Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And here's the main point. True acts of kindness are not mediocre. They are exceptional. They are exceptional because they are a rarity in our culture. We don't often see people doing things for others that are complete strangers. We do things for those we love. What about those people we don't even know? Let's look at a few factors in the exceptional nature of the kindness of Jesus in this miracle. The first one is Jesus' presence at the wedding at Cana is an expression of his desire to celebrate life. We often get this picture of Jesus, don't we? Most of the paintings from the Renaissance period with a drawn, sunken-in face, pale-complected. He's always serious. He's always concerned. Even a lot of the movies from the past about him are just nothing but serious. And I'm not saying Jesus was not serious. Please don't mishear me. But we get this picture of Jesus that he didn't like to have fun because we don't associate Jesus with fun. I don't know why in our culture that we don't associate Jesus with fun. Here's often what I hear. If I come to Brandon... If I come to Jesus, that means I have to give up a lot of fun. I have to give up the things I really enjoy. Well, let me tell you, the things you really enjoy in this world and in this life that are temporary and fading, do they truly bring you joy or is it temporary joy? Because the joy that Christ comes to give is eternal joy, eternal hope, eternal salvation. The joy this world has to offer is a, it's, it's really like a mirage. If you were in the desert and there was no water around, it's like seeing a mirage and it gives you a false sense of hope that, okay, I can make it through this desert. But Jesus is the one who brings water from rocks in dry places. He is the living water. When you taste of him, you will never thirst again, he says in John chapter 4. But we give in to the lies of the enemy and the lies of the world that, that, that have this mirage mentality that the things of this world truly have what we desire. But they don't. It's merely, merely temporary and fading. And Jesus comes onto the scene in this wedding celebration. Guess how long, how long do we normally, uh, when we're invited to a wedding, how long is the wedding celebration? Three, four hours maybe. Start to finish, right? The ceremony itself is barely 30 minutes. I've done enough of them to be able to tell you that. 30 minutes. The reception can last two to three hours depending on the venue you've rented for nearly a million dollars. <laughs> By the way, the church, for those of you who are members, is free, just so you know. But anyway, do you know what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm getting at? Wedding ceremonies in Jesus' day in the Jewish culture, you want to know how long, how long they lasted? At a minimum, seven days, upwards to two weeks. Talk about wine running out. Okay? It was a party that got down in Jewish style 2,000 years ago. But they had fun. It was a celebration. Why? Because God had ordained the sanctity of marriage between a husband and a wife. 
Why shouldn't it be celebrated? Why shouldn't there be no cost spared? This is a joining of two lives into one. It is a symbol of the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is a reflection of that oneness to where two are joined together and they become one. It is to be celebrated. And so Jesus, as an honored guest of this celebration, he's not an honored guest to sit on the stage with the bride and the groom. He is just a guest along with his mother. And he could have said, I don't go to functions like that because there's partying and alcohol. <laughs> Do you know what he did? He went. Most people believe because it was one of the small towns around the region of Galilee and all the small towns, everybody kind of knew each other in that region. And so Jesus and his mother Mary and probably the disciples were friends of the bride and groom and were invited to this event. And it was also poor um, etiquette to refuse an invitation. Okay? If you were invited to a celebration, you were expected to attend. So Jesus, living in that culture, being a part of that culture, gratefully attended as a guest, but not the guest of honor. Do you catch this? And we don't know whether it's five days into week one or maybe a couple days into week two, but guess what runs out? The wine. Which leads us to the next point. Jesus' response to his mother was a gentle reminder of what his life's purpose was. Do you remember when Jesus got forgotten and left behind at the temple when he was 12? Okay, you say, how can you forget a child? <laughs> well, we've done that before. <laughs> when you have more than one, it's hard not to forget a child. Okay, I'm just saying Shame on me, we've forgotten a child at the church before, you know, and so on and so forth, fill in the blanks. Jesus, being from the region of Galilee, they made the annual travel about 50 to 60 miles to Jerusalem from the region of Galilee in a caravan of probably 30 to 40, maybe 50 or 60 people to celebrate at one of the annual festivals. He was 12 years old. Everybody looks out for everybody in those caravans. This family A watches out for family B's kids, and family B watches out for family C's kids. They're all together. So the festival's over, the traveling back. They get maybe halfway back, because it's a multi-day journey between the two regions. Couple days in, where's Jesus? Anybody seen Jesus? Is, is he with family A or B, C, D, E, F, or G? Nobody has seen him. Mary and Joseph begin to panic. Joseph's probably like, honey, it's really okay. But internally, he's like, oh no, what are we going to do? Right? They've been entrusted with this miraculous child from birth and they've lost him. Can you imagine losing God? That'll preach right there. And so they go back. Not the whole caravan, but Mary and Joseph and their family. When they come back, they find Jesus in the temple courts. What's he doing? Yeah, he's teaching. He's teaching those supposedly wiser than him. The ones that had gotten their doctorate degrees in theology Jewish theology. And they're amazed at the words that are coming out of this kid's mouth. And when they have a moment to pull him away from the crowds that have gathered around to hear him speak and teach, Mary said, what in the world have you been doing? Pretty much. I'm paraphrasing. Look it up for yourself. What have you been doing? We have been scared to death. They're like, well, you're the one that left me. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, didn't you know I was to be about my father's business? Joseph's right there. What's he talking about? He's talking about the heavenly father. 
So now flash forward to the first miracle. He is with his mother at this wedding, and he responds to her. When she says, they've run out of wine for the wedding, what does he say? Dear woman, how is this our problem? Did you know my time, had, my time has not yet come? It's an echo of 12 years old. Did you know I'm to be about my father's business and no one else's? I can't go around fixing everybody's problems and doing things for everybody unless my father gives me instructions to do that. And I haven't heard from the father that I need to do anything about the wine. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, Mom, you knew that I was called to this. You've sat and marveled at the miracle of my birth. And you marveled at me speaking with the religious leaders when I was 12. Marvel now that my life is in the hands of the Father. And I am to be about his business. But in the same breath, he turns to the servants, (laughs) honoring his mother and honoring the Father more specifically. And he says, see those stone jars over there? Take all six of them and fill them up to the brim with water. He didn't say where to get the water. He didn't say, you know, whether it was Aquafina or, you know, from the bubbling springs of Turkish delight. or I'm just making up stuff now. But he, he just says, go fill them with water. Because the content in the jars at that point doesn't matter. What matters is what he does with the content and the jars and what he does with the content of your life. So we move on to point three. The way that Jesus performed this miracle was a clear indication of the ministry to which he was called. I want you to think about the type of jars. Remember I said earlier, what did did, uh, John tell us about the jars? They were stone They weren't made out of pottery thrown on a wheel. They were carved out of stone. They would have more than likely been tall, cylindrical jars, not wide, but tall, slightly wide, but taller than wide, okay? They would have been carved out stone vessels. Why is that significant? Because you didn't have to clean those jars, Porcelain jars, pottery thrown on a wheel and burned in a, or fired in a kiln, they were to be ceremonially washed and cleaned on a regular basis. These stone jars, because they were made out of earthenware, were considered pure. Did you know that? They weren't made by hands of man. What is stone made by? By God Himself. And so they take the stoneware that was used for ceremonially cleansing. Okay? Pull the sleeves up. What do you do when, you, when you're cleaning? You don't take a bath out of a stone jar. It's not taking a bath. You just, it's the hands. Sometimes it's the face. Sometimes it's the feet. These are the jars they were using that would have been ceremonially used for washing of feet, cleansing of hands if you've touched something unclean, cleansing of the head and the face because the water in them would have been considered pure because they were in a stone or an earthenware vessel that was naturally hewn from a rock. Why is that significant? Because the vessels he uses are pure in and of themselves because they were created by God, though they may have been shaped by men. Do you catch the significance of this? And then they go and they get water. Water is a natural resource. Could have been salt water. It could have been fresh water. It could have been any number of types of water. I'm guessing the servants didn't go to the sewer pits to get the water, okay? But they would, they would have gotten water from the well, maybe close by to that village. But they filled them to the top, all six jars, 20 to 30 gallons worth, and brought them back. 
Do you notice that miracles don't happen until action happens? We're going to learn about that in several of the miracles from this point forward in this series. That it's not until the person takes action in obedience to do what Jesus says that the miracle happens. Sometimes it happens without that. But oftentimes Jesus says, go and do this. And if they didn't go and do that, do you think a healing or a miracle would have happened? No. So the servants bring the water back, and he says, take some of the water out, scoop it out, and take it to the master ceremonies. The one who is leading in the efforts and the agenda for this two-week celebration, one-week celebration. As they do that, something happens between the time they scoop it out and take it to the master ceremonies. I wish I was one of those servants, or I wish I was a fly on one of the ceremonial pots of one of those servants to watch them go. I mean, they had to be like, we, we, our job is to do what we're told and to not ask questions, but if I'm thinking as a servant, I'm going to take, he's going to yell at me because it's dirty water or it's just well water. What am I doing? Scooping it out shaking to take it to the one who's in charge of the celebration and watching him lift it to his mouth to take a few gulps. I'm like, until he says, whoa, this is awesome. You brought the best stuff. Man, you guys are good. How much did you spend on all of this? I mean, whoa. The servants knew where it came from. Can you imagine how the servants' lives changed that day? Being not only witness to the miracle, but a part of the miracle. You see, Jesus isn't showing off, but Jesus doesn't do anything halfway. Jesus is either all in or he's all out. And do you know what Jesus expects of those who follow him? Any thoughts? You're either all in or you're all out. Do you know the problem with the American church today? We're not all in. And the reason we're not all in is because we're too busy. We're too busy tackling life and doing things that will ultimately wither and fade with time until we get into our golden years and realize that most of the stuff we've ever done has no eternal significance. And if I could go back and do it over again, I would spend more time doing those things that have eternal significance. Yes, I would work and do all of those other things I need to do, but I would spend less time worrying about them and doing those things that will wither and fade with time. I would focus on those things that are good and holy and right and and all of that and get rid of the fear, the anxiety, and the worry of not measuring up to everybody else's standards when God has called me to a higher standard. I would give myself fully and completely. I'm at 47. If I could go back and do my 20s over, which I don't want to do, mind you, I would do it differently. Do I have all regrets? No. I don't regret everything, but I have some. But some of that comes with time and wisdom and knowledge and understanding as I lean into God and look back over the course of my life and realize, man, I could have done that differently. Now, here's the other caveat to that. I don't need to live with the regret of the past either because Jesus called me, has called me in the present to look to him for my future. I don't live in the past. I may regret aspects of the past, but I can't live there. The enemy wants us to live in the past with those past regrets, which is why we stay mediocre, because we're beating ourselves up over X, Y, or Z that happened back here. And Jesus says, I have come. I have come that you might have life, and not just life, but to have it to the full. Who comes to steal, kill, and destroy? The thief. 
John chapter 10, 10. How many of you have allowed the thief to drive you into mediocrity by stealing your joy, your marriage, your children, your job, your relationships, or killing those things, or destroying those things? And instead of saying, no more, no more, no more mediocrity, no more burying my head in the sand, no more giving in to the temptations to think poorly of myself or others, I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on Christ, the author and perfecter of my faith. It's to him I owe everything So no toe in the water, no foot in the water. I want to be all in over my head in the water. Not just as a symbolic act of being sold out for Christ, but truly in every area of life being all in. The miracles of Jesus are evidence of a God that is all in for us. Do you get that? These signs, symbols, and wonders that come from the hand of God through Jesus and still come today in miraculous workings through the power of his Holy Spirit are not just meant as bells and whistles to make you go, huh. They are meant to draw you into the presence of God who supersedes natural wonders to bring you into the supernatural realm of goodness and holiness and abundant life. Jesus became a master of ceremonies without even having his name on it and superseded the expectations of his mother and everybody else when nobody knew. Jesus' act of kindness didn't need his label on it, but the Father's fingerprints were all over it. We were all over it. As our worship team comes forward to close this out, I want to read you. I want to read you this. If this doesn't get your get your wood burning, your wood sweat, your fire, I don't know. I'm not great with figures of speech. Pastor and missionary, author and seminary president by the name of Avery Willis wrote this. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have the right, I I don't have to be right to be first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or even rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, live by prayer, and labor by his power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, I cannot be deluded, I cannot be delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, or meander at the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. Like Jesus in Canaan, God has called you to live a life of extravagance, but not extravagance for you, extravagance for him, so that his reputation precedes you into the places you go. He has called you to something more than mediocrity. Every child of his is a royal heir to the throne of grace. 
Believers in Christ within an earshot, hear me. And those of you who maybe haven't stepped into that arena because you're skeptical, doubting, and wondering, or you just got a foot in the pool, God is for you. He is not against you. He has called you out of the land of wandering and into a land of abundance. But it's not about you. It never has been. It's always about him. And until we get that through our heads and our churches in America today, we will see doors of churches closing on every street corner until all glory and honor and praise is reflected back to him. So are you for mediocrity? Or are you for the Christ who gives abundant life? Our altars are open, as they always are. We have a prayer team that would love to pray with you. To my right, your left, on these stairs, on the altar over there, as the prayer team comes forward and as we lead in the last song, I don't know where this has hit you. I hope it's hit you in a good spot. I hope it's brought conviction on those of you that aren't living to the fullest that God has called you to, so that you would take that conviction Allow it to shift you so that you can become a person who is a living sacrifice unto God. If you want to be left alone, but you do want to come pray, you come to my left, your right. Nobody's going to bother you over here. But if you want somebody to pray with you, come to my right, your left. Let's pray. God, you are good and holy and righteous and everything that we're not always perfectly, but you've called us to be through your son, Jesus Christ. For in him, there is a covering of a multitude of sins. We can be made white as snow. We don't have to live with the regrets of the past, but we can learn from them so that in the present, we can be fully all in for you. Forgive us of our sin. We repent of all of that junk that we've continued to hold on to when you said, give me your burdens and I will give you rest. Forgive us, God, for not being all in for you. Doesn't mean we have to be perfect or come to you all washed and clean already. You can take clay jar, or you can take earthen vessel jars and make them holy. How much more do you desire to do that with us? Oh God, restore us. Change us by renewing our minds and fill us to overflowing with the power of your Holy Spirit and break forth in a revival with each and every individual in this place and let that ripple out not just in acts of kindness but a wave of love and compassion to the world around us so that they can see and taste that you are good. It is in Jesus' precious name that we ask all of this. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.